Hello, this is episode 207. Now, in this episode, you're going to learn from architect Anthony Martin of MRTN Architects how you can think about the pre-design phase of your project. I find that often when homeowners are starting their project, their priority is to think about the floor plan design, how it's going to get created and who will be helping them. And if you're planning on working with a design professional such as an architect or a building designer, then you may expect that your very first steps with them are going to be you seeing them put pen to paper or mouse to their CAD program as floor plans of your future new home or renovation get created based on your list of wishes and wants. However, and you've probably heard me talk about this before, and it's definitely something that I teach inside my online mini courses and also in my flagship program, The Home Method, getting your design started... It's nowhere near as important as ensuring that you actually start the right design. Now, when you take time at the beginning of your project to ensure that you're starting the right design for your future home, you'll find that your whole project experience is far simpler and far more enjoyable. And you'll be able to be far more strategic about the time and the money that you're investing in your project. It's also a fantastic way to prevent ending up with a home that doesn't suit you or that you'll outgrow or that frustrates you on a daily basis. Now, are you not sure what to do in this pre-design phase and what it might involve to ensure that you start the right design? Well, you're going to love this conversation that I'm having with Anthony Martin because it's going to clarify a lot of the kinds of things to consider and how helpful this process can be for shaping your thinking about your design and your project journey. I do want to let you know up front, there's some moments in this episode where the audio may seem a bit strange. Now, MRTN Architects, they're in an open plan office and anyone who works in an open plan office with meeting rooms that aren't acoustically closed off will know that managing noise when there's phone calls and conversations happening in the background, that can be challenging. I was laughing a bit when I listened back to the recording because I could actually hear his team shushing each other at certain points and it brought back a lot of memories of working in open plan offices and how tricky that can be. Now, well, I'm at home and I'm just dealing with noisy kids (laughs) or as many of you may have heard in previous episodes or in the online courses, because I know that you've got in touch with me about it. There's the odd chook or there was, we had a rooster that just always seemed to know when I was recording something, he's no longer with us, but he just seemed to appear out of nowhere whenever I was recording something. Or sometimes there's been the mooing of a cow as well. So, you know, that's what's in the background of my recordings, but the audio will be a bit funny at certain points in this episode episode. Please, um, my apologies for that. Please persevere. Anthony really shares such great information in this conversation with me. It's definitely worth listening to it, uh, to the whole episode. Remember as well, uh, all the resources and the information that's mentioned in this episode, you can head to www.undercoverarchitect.com forward slash 207. I've popped them all there for you, including links to be able to get in touch with Anthony. Now let's dive in. Welcome to the Get It Right podcast. I'm your host, Amelia Lee from Undercover Architect. With over 25 years industry experience, I've worked with loads of homeowners like you to create family homes that work, feel great, and that you feel great in. I'm a wife and a mum to three kids who, thanks to our own renovations, they all learned to climb ladders before they walked. And I'm a registered architect who is passionate about you feeling informed, educated, and empowered as you design, build, or renovate your home. Now, if you're up for some frank and open conversation about the true nitty gritty of designing, building and renovating based on professional and personal experience across hundreds and hundreds of homes, well, you're in the right place. 
Undercover Architect is an award-winning online business and resource that began in mid-2014. And it's all about teaching you how to create a fantastic, feel-good family home. One that works for you now and into the future. One that is sustainable and affordable, and that helps you live a great lifestyle, both in and beyond your home. So whether you're renovating or building, whoever you're working with, and whatever your dreams, your location, or your budget, consider Undercover Architect your secret ally in helping and teaching you how to get it right. Now, before we jump into this podcast episode, a quick shout out to my sponsors. Today's podcast episode is brought to you by me and my free online workshop, Your Project Plan. I actually created this online workshop because I so regularly see a lot of time and money get wasted in renovation and building projects. And this happens largely because homeowners just don't know what they're supposed to be doing next. So that makes it really easy to make missteps, to take the wrong advice, or to actually skip important parts of your project that will catch you out down the track, or worse, mean that you miss out on things that you really wanted in your home. Learn how to avoid serious and expensive mistakes, what to do next, whatever stage you're at in your project, and also access some great bonuses too by heading to undercoverarchitect.com forward slash project plan. And that's project plan spelled P-R-O-J-E-C-T P-L-A-N. That's undercoverarchitect.com forward slash project plan. Take the guesswork out of the next steps you need to take in your project journey and sign up today for free for this great online workshop. And now let's get on with the episode. Here we go. Back in May of 2021, I attended a virtual conference run by Architeam. So Architeam is a membership organisation for architects and their conference was a really great collection of speakers, not only on architectural content, but also business, mindset, communication and client relationships. Anthony Martin of MRT and Architects delivered a keynote on the pre-design phase that they have developed in their business and honed in their work with residential clients. And I listened to Anthony talk through how this process works and what they're seeking to achieve with starting their projects in this way. And the three main aspects that they're exploring with their clients, which are experience, knowledge and inspiration. And you're going to hear more about these in our conversation in this episode. Anthony also showed the process that they use to discuss budget in this pre-design phase. And it's done in an analytical and objective way. And it happens this way deliberately so that it avoids some of that personal attachment that naturally comes through the exploration of floor plan ideas and design concepts. And so we talk about that in this episode as well, because that I thought was an amazing process and really worth sharing. I really want to thank Anthony for his generosity in, the, in this episode. We've got a fantastic deep dive into the process of pre-design that they use at MRT and Architects. And I know that you're going to find it super helpful in thinking about your project journey as well. Let me tell you a little bit more about Anthony. So Anthony has proven experience of working closely with government, institutional and commercial clients to deliver a successful outcome on budget and on schedule. And having worked in the industry since graduating in 1995, he has extensive experience in the design, documentation and administration of complex and unique projects in private, commercial and public sectors. With a long career that's seen him working in both Australia and the US, Anthony's been fortunate to work on significant buildings such as the Melbourne Museum, the Apollo Theatre in Harlem, uh, New York, and of course the Australian Pavilion in Shanghai for the World Expo. 
Anthony formed MRTN Architects in 2010 and it's a design-focused architecture and interior design studio. They have a reputation for their unique style and the recognisable homes that they create specifically for the families and individuals that live in them. An award-winning practice, their projects range through city, country and coastal homes that are sustainable and contemporary. Experienced in designing to local requirements for, from council, uh, including bowel and bushfire-prone areas, they're also recognised for their sensitive response to projects situated within a heritage overlay. MRTN Architects' projects, regardless of scale or type, have in common a considered design approach that results in buildings that use materials wisely and are correctly oriented, sized and proportioned. Their approach to design is not a prescriptive one. They enjoy getting to know their clients and working with them to arrive at an outcome together. And this process should satisfy what is required of the brief and for of the desires for the project, but also create something unexpected and wonderful. And their goal is to create enduring spaces and form enduring relationships. And I think you'll hear this in how Anthony talks about this pre-design phase and what it sets up in their project experience and the way that they work with their clients. Now, as I said, please be patient with the audio when you hear Anthony's team in the background. I do hope that you enjoy this conversation of ours and that you find it super, super helpful for your own project journey. Let's jump in. Well, Anthony, I'm super excited to have you here. Since seeing you at the Architeam conference and hearing you present on the information that we're going to be talking about here, I did actually toy with the idea of just getting you to present your keynote again to, no. <laughs> to the undercover architect community. <laughs> but I think it's going to be um, it's going to be really good for us to be able to extract some of the information there because as I was thinking, as I was listening to you present this uh, format that you use in working with clients, I could just hear how uh, powerful this was going to be for homeowners to wrap their heads around. Um, so many designers don't start this way. So many architects don't start this way. So many homeowners don't understand that this is a great um, way to start. You know, I mentioned before we uh, started recording that this is how I teach homeowners to start their projects. And so it's going to be great to hear it from your point of view in a, you know, a tested model that you've been using with clients to date. Can you just start by perhaps introducing yourself and telling us a little bit about your practice and the kind of work that you do? Sure. Thanks, Amelia. Um, yeah, so my practice started about 10 years ago. I'm actually originally from New Zealand and practiced there for a couple of years before coming over to Australia and uh, worked there for about four years for some bigger firms and then went to uh, New York. I've always been an American file, so living to New York was my big dream ever since I was a teenager. So I got to do that, which was really great. Um, but the thing was, when I was in New York, I worked on very different projects over there. I was working on apartments. So we're sort of just stripping everything out, putting joinery back in. And being in New York, you were just working with type A clients all the time. So it's, it's intense. They are really intense personalities. All those cliches are totally true. And it, but it taught me a lot, well, it taught me a lot about sort of joinery and storage details, but it also taught me a lot about how you communicate and deal with clients and how you maintain quite complex relationships for a long period of time. Um, after that, I actually came back and worked for Wood Marsh again for a few years and worked on the Australian Pavilion in Shanghai, which is a really interesting experience. And then thought, I really do want to just try my own projects and, and have my own clients and see what my architecture is like and started my project without the benefit of sort of connections and school connections and all those things but I thought well I would give it a go and it's just been one foot in front of the other and one project after another and it's been really enjoyable um, 
we do really all residential work. Um, but they find a lot of interest out of the various types of residential work. You know, a, a home on the coast is very different to one in the city, is very different to one in the country. And there's actually a lot of variation between those types. Um, a home is not the same from one place to the other. And, and we enjoy exploring all those different kinds of projects. So, yeah, that's, that's where we are. That's a fantastic well, run through. And I hadn't thought about how that time in New York would inform, uh, be a really great training ground for that relationship with clients because, yeah, I like you, I have a, a soft spot for the States. I spent a fair bit of time there in my late 20s and uh, I actually worked in a summer camp in the north of New York State with, which had 300, right. yeah, so it was a... It was a camp for 350 boys and then it had a, a girls dance camp attached to it and I was so I was a camp counsellor and I taught in arts and crafts in my late 20s and the parents were all from sort of Manhattan and um, you know just outside of Manhattan and so yes can completely relate. Yeah, it, was, it was a really interesting time and I was actually quite fortunate. My, my first job was there was for quite a big modernist architecture firm that had been going since the 60s which was interesting, but it was a very intense New York experience. And then I moved and I worked for another New Zealander there, actually, David Howell, David Howell Design, who was doing high-end residential work. So it was this wonderful balance of just working around Union Square, working in the office and very much a sort of a, um, you know, New Zealand-Australian kind of approach to work and then dealing with those New York clients. So it was an ideal setup. It was great. What an amazing experience. Um now, you're often called to speak at conferences and to present to the industry, and I know that you also uh, also work with university students in sort of talking through the models that you use inside your practice in the way that you work with clients. And I think this is one of the sort of things that's really missing from architectural education generally is that how do you navigate your relationship with a client to, to shepherd them through the process as much as be able to design their project for them. So how, you know, have you found that this methodology touched on a little bit in the work that you did in New York? How have you sort of shaped these methodologies? Have they been quite organic as you've tested and tried different things out? Or have you been sort of deliberately trying to solve problems and pain points that you've seen as you've um, moved through your business and practice? It's, it's an interesting question. Um, so that, I mean, coming to the speaking about it, the speaking about it, the process part of it has been relatively recent. And it's one of those things that always occurs once you're asked to actually speak about something, you actually start to think a bit more about why you do things in a particular way and you dig a bit deeper into it. And so it actually has been quite fortunate that I have spoken about this a couple of times recently and it has allowed me to, to dig a bit deeper into it, think about the backstory and the whys and the wherefores and why we might be different. Um, so I think... Quite, uh, not in a particular plan, but there seems to be a perception that we do do things in a particular way that is, there's a point of differentiation to other architects. And I think that there's a perception, which, which I hope is a reality, that it goes into that kind of information gathering and process part of it. Um, I think a lot of it stems from a what I call sort of an anti-Howard Rourke approach. So there's... I think you know, there's a lot of perception out there that Howard Rock was the architect and the fountainhead, as people that don't know. So he, he was the sort of, you know, architect as God type character. You know, you give me your budget, you give me your brief, and then go away and I'll tell you what your house looks like. 
There's a great story recently from someone that got a house designed by Robin Boyd um, that actually wanted Harry Seidler to design his house. And Harry Seidler like, literally said this, you know, there's a big marble desk, like, this is how much it's going to cost to go away and I'll give you your house back. So, I'm, you know, many, most architects are not like that at all. But I think that what we try and do is push it as far in the other direction, the other end of the spectrum as possible. I think that where it came out of, to be honest, initially was when I started the practice, I hadn't really done a whole lot of single residences. I'd sort of avoided residential work apart from the stuff in New York in my practice. So when I started working on new houses, there was part of my thinking process, like how do I find my way into this problem? And I was kind of sharing that as I went along. But then as we've got experience and as we've continued to do more and more projects, it's become such an integral part. It's not something that we've dropped and left behind as we've become experienced. Instead, we've kind of honed and refined and mo sort of modeled that information and how we share that with the client. So that process leading up to the sketch design or, or concept design uh, is such a significant uh, sector of our services. And, and the differentiating fact is that often you will get a brief and you have a conversation about the brief and you visit the site. There's, there's that kind of um, discourse that then the architects will go away and sort of respond to that brief. <laughs> so this is the response to what I think you're after. And then we'll fine tune it, you know, sort of work through that as we go. What, what we sort of like to do is, is pause that phase, pause that briefing kind of phase and, and stop the process and just gather information together. So gather information, don't give responses. And that, that's what we call the pre-design phase. But our way I put it to clients is we're essentially going to come up with an illustrated brief that as architects, we don't want to just see a Word document describing your house. Let's look at a whole lot of elements that make up the house and thought process. Put that down into a document and that becomes our pre-design. And, and done well, I, I say to clients, and it's true, we refer back to that. You know, like if we're checking what sort of type of heating did we discuss for this project, we go back to the pre-design, that information is in that single point. And not to say that things can't change, but you go through a process of gathering information put it in one location. Yeah, that's a fantastic run through because I think that, um, you know, often, I'm often teaching homeowners about the importance of establishing that brief. And a lot of that is because there's so many professionals in the industry, building designers, draftspeople, architects who don't really do a great job of eliciting the brief from the client at the outset. And so the project sort of begins in a bit of a confusion, a state of confusion where the, the designer's working on a bunch of assumptions, the homeowner hasn't known how to effectively communicate what they want. And um, so it can be really challenging to get on the same page. And so the brief, if a homeowner can take the time to sort of work through that brief themselves before they step into that process, then that can certainly facilitate it. I love that you're actually helping clients navigate formulating their thoughts and guiding, you know, creating sort of signals and guideposts as to the kinds of things for them to think about so that you're eliciting the best quality information from them. But also potentially, I think one of the beautiful things that can happen in a relationship with a really, you know, a highly experienced uh, designer is that 
that you you can be challenging a client to think about things that they haven't even hasn't even occurred to them yet and that's where I think we get the benefit of being able to expand on you know what's possible what potential there is what their experience might be because we can you know surprise them with things that they sort of think well I've got to ask for a list of rooms and instead you're saying well how do you want this home to help you live in 10 15 20 years time you know what are your favorite things to do how does that all work into the process so I think it's just yeah I I think it's just a, a really great example of what the beginning of a process can and should look like with a designer that it's that that conversation because I can imagine you in the process get to know so much intimately about the client very very quickly um in that sort of eliciting that information from them and then to have that as a place to come back to to really guide the process moving forward and as a checkpoint because they're going to have to make tens of thousands of decisions so to be able to guide that can be really really powerful so um and so I really want to dive into this pre-design uh process in a lot more detail because I think um by getting you to explain how you help your clients navigate this, I think it will really highlight some key areas for homeowners to think about and for any architects and designers listening to this as well, for them to be able to see the kinds of conversations that they can and should be having. You know, I I sometimes think that designers and architects maybe think that it's possibly not appropriate to be discussing certain things with clients so soon or, you know, that kind of thing. So I think that it'll be really powerful. So um, so in the keynote, I actually heard you um, say this, you said design is a speculation on a future outcome. And that thorough understanding of the problem means that we can create a truly long-term solution. So can you just talk about this? Because I think that a lot of homeowners wouldn't necessarily think as their home, the home that they want to create as a design problem that needs to be solved. So can you just talk through this idea of sort of identifying the problem and that, that I, and how that then can feed that long-term solution idea? You know, at the start of the process, um, most of our clients really come with a very elemental description of what their brief is and, and the budget as well, you know, and, and citing. So it's very much a um, human nature or knee-jerk response to what is required and how that uh, requirement might be met, okay? And I completely understand that. Like, that's how I would approach a problem which I don't have much knowledge about. So what we need to do is establish um, what the known unknowns are, right? And that that's where the interest is. Like, let's <clears throat> establish or discuss other elements of that house or the brief that we might consider later on. So I'm not saying that these are things that need to be incorporated or are going to be part of the home, but a conversation about uh, what the known unknowns might be. So the things that we might know that might need to be looked at. And what is interesting and what's nice about that is we can start to introduce a whole lot of sort of concepts of ways of thinking or approaches to the house that you don't need to give me an answer on now. We can just start to think about this. So an example, specific example that I like to give um, is our homes. The homes that we generally work on are forever homes, you know, a long-term home. And most of our clients come to us wanting that sort of home which is great. But when we really unpack what that thinking is, you know, so you have three children, they're at primary school. What does that mean when they're at high school? 
and you know i've got high school age kids i don't want to be near them at all they can just be <laughs> somewhere else i mean there's you know like how you think parenting is going to be at that time and then how it actually is and you know let's talk about that but you know like a fun conversation to have you can see you know you, you get to sort of understand and chat to your clients about it but you can also really think quite conceptually about how that home operates when you've got a 16-year-old boy in there who's like, you know, on his phone and studying for maths and doesn't want to be with the rest of the family. How does the house work then? And then I pushed that further, like, you know, at university, fees are high. They're probably not going to go flat in with their mates. How do you give them independence in the house while they're still living with you? That can be a range of how you arrange um, access into the house, or how it might be partitioned off, all the way through to, you know, what about if the house flips and your kids have got their own kids and they live in the main house and you live in the granny flat out the back? Like, how could we plan for that without, and without you know, making that set in place? That's just sort of one example of how you can sort of string some thinking together and add packing into that elemental brief of these we need three bedrooms and another main bedroom and a study so that can sort of expand the brief and expand the thinking and again it doesn't need to be answered at that stage but it's just kind of um one thing i mentioned in the presentation about the designs of journeys you know, a long journey and i like to describe that you sort of you've got that kind of you know overland four-wheel drive land rover and, and you're gonna you need to get from where we are now to a house that you're gonna move into it's a journey there we need to pack it up with as much stuff as we can but you can't put everything into it so we're just trying to put as many things into that land rover before we we get started on the journey yeah, when I heard that analogy and the fact that you then sort of went on to talk about that you see your role as, as you know, you see that the homeowner gets to decide what they're putting in that vehicle for the journey, but you as the architect, you see your role is to help guide them as to what uh, would be what would be worthwhile putting into the vehicle for the journey to meet a range of futures, you know, not just their future um, immediately in the next sort of, you know, two to five years, but those long range futures that you were talking about, plus also the future owners that that house might go on to be owned by and what their lifestyles might look like. You know, this, I think as an architect, we often underestimate the fact that we're designing not just for our current clients, but for hopefully for, for, uh, for people that we might never meet who come to enjoy the home that in the future, Future. And if we've done our job well, that that home stands the test of time and can be flexible and functional for many different scenarios. So it's. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, th I think the other component of that, Amelia, is that, that it's not just a one way conversation either. Like, yes, the client needs to, we're going to talk about their lives and what they require from their home. But what we're, we're going to take this opportunity to also sort of talk about what we, how we expect our homes to work and some education about really basic um, architectural design principles, you know, like thermal mass and orientation. So, it, it, yeah, it's just this opportunity to, to pack that brief from two directions, what they need and what we think it should be doing as well. And um, that's a great, it's a great opportunity to do that because it's sort of, again, we're not saying that this is going to be the way in your house, but it gives a whole lot of building blocks, small building blocks and, and bits of luggage for the, for the car. 
I love the idea too of the known unknowns because I find that a lot of homeowners, they'll start researching the process and and they say to me, I'm just worried because I start realising that there's so many things that I know I don't know. And, you know, they, the more that they research, the more they scratch the surface of all the things that they know that they don't know. And yet when there's a lot of power in being able to identify, okay, we don't know these things yet but we know that we're going to need to solve them or navigate them or, you know, respond to them in some way, shape or form. And so if we can actually put them on our horizon, that means that they won't blindside us. It means that we'll have an ability to manage our risk through that process and, you know, be able to adapt um, the process to meet those things. So I think that that's, that known unknowns is a great way of thinking about it. I mean, I, the, I actually think that we're sort of limited in the architectural services we provide. We will, maybe we limit ourselves, or maybe there's just not good information about how you might engage an architect. Because I think that we there is a lot of value to get involved much earlier than what we typically do. So our Venus Bay house, the Hyde house, which we recently finished, we actually got, we started conversations with the owners when they were looking for land. So we were able to share a lot of those known unknowns you know, building on sand, septic system, siting, orientation, weather systems. That was, a, that was a good sort of information to have as they then considered land purchase. And, yeah, exactly as you say, often we could be coming too late in that process or we're, we're trying to, through the early stages of the design process, perhaps redress some things that were overlooked at the purchase or, you know, initial kind of phases. So that information can help. So we, we try and share a lot of that information early on um, before we get into the formal kind of engagement process. So there's a lot of you know, conversations we do have with people that are looking for properties and we will try and give them a few bullet point things to think about. But you can really only do it thoroughly, I think, if you are sitting down and going into it in a lot more detail. It, it's I guess what I'm saying is... Um, there's some input we can provide early on just over the phone, but actually getting into that process is where the value is. Yeah, and I think I think what's critical here is that there's actually the mental engagement from the homeowner at the beginning of the process, that they're not sort of delaying that decision-making or that commitment to ideas or the exploration of, of themselves and their lifestyles until you know, a later date, that they're actually starting to think about some of those things in the in those early phases. And I can imagine that explaining the pre-design phase can probably be met with some confusion in the, you know, when you are working with clients, because my experience is that many homeowners will be researching sometimes for, you know, one year, anywhere between one year and 10 years before they decide that they're going to hit go on renovating or building their, um, you know, forever home. And so when they actually hit go, they want it all to happen as soon as possible. They've set themselves a, a deadline of, you know, being in the house by a particular time frame. And so all of the, the slowness that's been happening up to that point and the inch by inch sort of little by little all of a sudden becomes this rush to get drawings done, get approvals, get on site, get built. And so I imagine when you go, whoa, 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 no, we're going to do pre-design and no, we're not going to be doing any drawings yet, <laughs> how that might actually be received. So, you know, can you talk a little bit about about that and how clients kind of, yeah, how, how you communicate to clients, what they yeah, sure. actually so powerful. I don't find that at all. You know, yeah. In fact, quite, quite the opposite. The way um, 
you know, if you're speaking to a potential new client, the typical um, process is to bring them into the office and, and to talk through their project and some of those initial conversations that you have. And then we present, we show them pre-designed examples of projects that they might know. And they actually, they quite, there's a very warm reception to that. They get quite excited actually about that process. I think there's actually a fair bit of nervousness, I think, from clients. They're just going to go, you know, here's, here's my brief, and then you're just going to turn around with the floor plan. You know, and I actually think people don't want that to happen. Um, they, they enjoy that bit of process about it. The, the other thing for us, really, is it's, it's almost a little bit of a selfish thing, is that it's, it delays the act of design, right? So I, I think that really the longer we delay putting pen to paper and doing the design, the better the outcome we get. Because, of course, you know, someone could come in this afternoon and brief me for a, a house, and, this, you know, the, tonight I could do a bit of a floor plan, but it's not going to be very well informed. It's not really going to respond so well to what those people require. So the longer I can meet with them, go to site, do a presentation, have another conversation, by the time we come to the design, I'm much more certain that we're going to be hitting the markers and have raised their expectations, have lifted what they think their home could be, and also provide something that we're really proud of and thinks, you know, now, okay, now we can't wait to see it be built. <laughs> Now you guys need to get cracking. So get <laughs> yeah. No, that's fantastic. So in the presentation that you gave, you talked through the three aspects that you explore as part of your pre-design. So I was wondering if we could go into those in a little bit more detail. You called them, if I get this, if, I've, if, I, if I took my notes during your presentation correctly, <laughs> they were experience, knowledge and inspiration. So if we can start with experience, which is, you know, you explained it sort of um, how you can explore the various, as you described, learned and loaded um, experience of the site and, and the design, uh, I suppose, the design problem that's being presented to be able to start working with the client so that, you know, there's that age old thing we often um, see as architects, we might see that beautiful building that seems like it could have been the only solution for that site because it just nails to perfection the site responsive, lifestyle responsive design, you know, solution for that particular moment, that particular client, that particular site. And so there's that obviously comes through that understanding of, of what you're exploring through experience so that then you're not exploring 520 different options it almost seems like there's only one perfect solution for this can you talk through how you 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 explore the idea of experience as part of that pre-design phase i think one thing i will just say part of our experience is to to often present options yes. so we, we, we don't, <laughs> no. uh, options actually a very important way of decision yes. making yeah eliminate pros and cons and get a direction but um the experience part of the equation is the way I like to think of it is those habits that we have as architects where we sort of habitually respond to a given situation. So there's just sort of golden rules or things that we know need to be the case. And, and what I like to do is before I show a design and go, yes, of course it's orientated north because that's when we get the sun. We take a step back and we'll say, when we look at a site, we'd like to consider north. 
Now, why do we consider north? You know, like explain the sun direction, explain the sun path. It's just, it's these things that just one conversation leads to another, to another, to another. It's like fantastic, the avenues that you can go into. And those avenues sort of vary quite a bit project by project. But experience is like sight and orientation and um, weather and those kind of things that we just sort of have knee-jerk responses to. And by going into what those knee-jerk responses are, I can explain why we do it. We can educate and make sure that we both understand why we're doing things. And then we can also dive into a few sort of rabbit holes and see if there's some other things we could tease out about. Um, so as an example, north, the sun's predominantly to the north, and that's where we get good heat from. And we can um, design an eave, so we just explain what an eave is, so that we get summer sun is blocked from the floor, and then winter sun is allowed to come into the thermal mass. What's thermal mass? We can explain that. We can explain the difference of window systems. We can then go into PV panels, electric versus gas. So that's all these kind of, these elements of the experience and the building blocks of how one decision builds on another, builds on another, builds on another. And things that we can sow seeds on, things to start thinking about. Um, I think I mentioned in the talk, this would be an example where I would talk about north, thermal mass, eaves, PV panels, why we use electric, all electric in our houses and have no gas connections, and then why we use heat pump technology for heating water, for, heat, for domestic hot water and for the heating. That, that, there's a lot of information just in that section. And, and I don't need you to decide now, you know, that I don't need you to buy in so it's no gas, but I've put that thought in there you can sort of take that away and have a think about it. You can now understand why I'm facing living areas in a particular direction that's going to inform the planning of it. And you can start to think about why you might want concrete on the floor rather than timber, right? So there's, there's just so much in that one conversation. And, and then, you know, there'll be conversations about siting, where you place it. And then that, that varies quite a bit, again, by country, coastal and city type houses. And, we might have a conversation for houses that are going to be an alteration and addition project. We really have a look at what's worth saving in the existing house. What do we really need to look at? Where can we improve, say, the insulation of the roof and replacing windows and sort of breaking that existing house down into components as well. So that's that experience part of it, where we're kind of bringing experience that we have as been trained as architects, but also experience of seeing projects play out on site and, and what happens. Yeah, what I love is that there's so much in that conversation about understanding where the client's level of knowledge is uh, in that regard about those specific topics because you'll have clients at different sort of levels of research and understanding and um, and I think that we can often make the mistake of, of having a lot of uh, or just coming at the conversation with a lot of assumed knowledge and then they can get bamboozled with terminology and um, feel very alienated from the process of their own home design. So to be able to draw them into that conversation, figure out where their level of knowledge is, then uh, be able to provide that expertise to meet that experience gap could just 
just really changes the kinds of conversations you can have. And I often talk to homeowners about the fact that I see many homeowners make the mistake of traveling through their project like they're in a diamond. So they'll start at the pointy end of a diamond, make one decision, start barreling forward. They'll get to the meaty part of the diamond and realize all of a sudden that they had all of these options and all of these choices, but they've already invested time and money to get to where they are. There's all this sunk cost that they don't feel they can walk away from. And instead they should just start at the fat part of treat it like a, a triangle and start at the fat part and it be this beautiful process. So when you talked about options before, I think the gorgeous thing about options is that when you actually start using it as an iterative testing model to see what meets these criteria that you hold as important priorities for your site and you sort of you're always exploring within bounds of some important decisions that you've made up front and I can see that that experience is really where you get to elicit as their architect what do they feel are their important priorities whilst educating them of things that you know from your experience in projects the decisions that matter and are going to have a long lasting effect on their lifestyle in their home, the maintenance of their home, the energy efficiency of it, the performance of it. So it's, um, yeah, it's an exciting, exciting way of being able to, to navigate that with a client. I mean, I think that, that there's the, that part of it is you, you build that knowledge together and you build your understanding and you share that experience. Um, and no one remembers all of it right at the beginning, but you keep, you know, you start into the case and throw some stuff away, but you keep touching it as you go through. But you get buy-in, right? You get shared ownership and you're doing these things collaboratively so that once things get more evolved or they're on site, people are walking through, not going, oh, hang on, wouldn't, shouldn't we have done this differently or wouldn't that be better? They're like, we have done this because it, there's a logic, to, there's a clear logic to it that we have followed. And it's it's making sense, and I think that it's most satisfying for me really is if, pro, if you know clients are describing their projects, I'll say to a journalist or to other people later, or you know like as a tour, and I'm there, and they will talk about those elements, you know those things that we discussed right back in pre-design, you know like it's a oh, it's a wonderful house, it's really warm, the sun comes all the way into here in winter, and you know those those things get. Uh, packed away and that, like I said there's that ownership it's like that's part of my house we did these sensible moves and you know we're, we're pleased we did that's so good I like the sort of the diamond analogy because it's also that kind of you know the diamond at the start that kind of little rough rock looks like any sort of rock and then if you just keep chipping it away and polishing that's when it gets the valuable product and yeah that's so, a fantastic parallel to it as well I um yeah, I think that that oftentimes designers and architects make the mistake of um, underestimating their client's ability to really wrap their head around some big and complex ideas um, that we might have spent decades studying and, and putting into practice, but can really be something that they can take ownership of and become the ambassador of in their project. So um, I really encourage any designers or architects listening to really uh, to hear you, Anthony, in terms of the journey that you take your clients on because for them to feel empowered with that knowledge and understand the reasons why their home design is evolving the way that it is, 
can just yeah can just really change things significantly for them so now the knowledge is the second part of this and this is obviously where you start diving into the all-important budget and also some of the constraints some of the you know the physical legal those kinds of building and regulation constraints that any uh, building is going to have just because of the physicality of it I'd really love if you could dive into more detail because what I I was so excited to see was the way you actually talk about budget square meter rate and square meters with the homeowner at a point where many are trying to really get that nailed down very quickly you had quite a different process in terms of a testing and iterative process that still enabled them to be quite analytical about that and I was uh, just love you to dive into that in more detail so clients we're all human right and and we cannot help but approach things from a subjective uh, standpoint. So when we start to talk about plans, the, the last thing we want to do is show somebody a floor plan for, for their house until we've really had a lot more conversation. So uh, it's that, as I mentioned before, delaying the active design, but there's also about just keeping things abstract for as long as we can. Now, why why I guess we talk about this is a floor plan equates to an area and as architects we equate area to budget. So we sort of use a very blunt tool at the start of the design process at least where we talk about a certain number of dollars per square meter. So if you come to me with a budget I divide that by the, uh, the rate per square meter and that gives me the size of your house. Okay so that's on the left hand side. On the right hand side Three bedrooms, a study, kitchen, living, dining, a second living, a garage, you know, whatever. That There's another area associated to that. Now, if you come to me and give me a list of that brief and I go, oh, that's a big house, that's about 300 square metres. It's completely abstract. It's, it's, as ab it's as abstract as saying your budget's too small, right? Because one's too big and one's too small, but there's nothing to sort of back that up explain that apart from you as the architect uh, telling me that's the case. So we, we unpack this and we've had a lot of success with this and people do very, they respond very well to it actually. We take the brief, we break it down room by room. Now we know approximately how big a bedroom is, how big a bathroom is. We can put a square meter to that. We know that in our houses we as a factor of circulation that we should add on, so add on 12% for circulation, add 5% on for storage, those kind of figures. And then we can come to a figure that says, well, based on the area you've given us, the rooms you've given us, it is 260 square meters. Now, if we take your budget and divide it by the rate, it comes out to 200 square meters. And this is the part where we go, this is fine. We can do 200 square meters or we can do 260. But we'll need to consider sort of doubling up room uses or deleting some rooms. We can do that. Or we can review the budget. Decision is yours, right? So that's a very different conversation to here's a floor plan that's fabulous. It meets everything here, but it doesn't meet everything on the left-hand side. And, you know, you can really get that reaction of we love this floor plan. We just <laughs> we need to get it for this budget. 
it's not a great conversation to have. And it, it's really not a great conversation to have when you're at the beginning of a really long process with somebody, being the client-architect relationship. And you want to try, you want to go through so many challenges in that relationship, really, as you, as you get to the built outcome. You don't want to bring that sort of into question right at the beginning of why have you shown me something that we can't even afford to build. Like, let's have some reality right from the start. And without the ownership of this is, you know, the floor plan that you've given me. So that's that's the way that we approach that, that budget. Um, I also try and tell people we try and be very conservative about it. So the square meter we use might appear quite high, but I don't want to get a cost plan done later or a builder price it and then keep pushing that price up. So we're trying to keep it around that cost and we adjust it as we go through. It's not a, um, we don't want to do a bait and switch on that either. So while the square meter rate might seem high, it's often more realistic perhaps than, than starting down low and keep picking it up as you go through. Because that's part of trust as well. Yeah, I think that that the idea of, of how you went about like when I saw you describe that exercise and, you know, during the presentation you showed almost a kit of parts in terms of, you know, ideas of do you want this kind of kitchen or do you want this kind of kitchen which is considerably bigger in terms of square metre each? Do you want, you know, this type of living space or this type of living space? And keeping it really analytical, um, it was something that was just so incredibly powerful to see because I totally agree with you that once a homeowner sees a floor plan, they they may not even like the floor plan, but they've already started mentally rehearsing what it's going to be like to live in it, you know, and it's <laughs> and it's this per <laughs> complete personalization of it that is very hard to then detach themselves from because it's that imagined future that hasn't happened yet that they may not be able to afford but it's been presented there as a potential reality um and so and particularly if it's the first time they've ever done this it can be just such a, a complex overwhelming process to then ratchet it back and say oh whoa, 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 no hang on you can actually only afford you know half to three quarters of this so which is what i find my experience with homeowners and their budgets is that their brief their budget is generally 50 to 75 percent of where their brief is and so there's always that awkward conversation which unfortunately for many homeowners doesn't happen until well into their process they find out how far misaligned those two their brief and their budget actually are whereas i can see the power of keeping it really analytical almost like a mathematical exercise with no personalization of the application of that area. It's still very, um, very sort of uh, high level um, analysis and then getting, getting the, the, the decision-making back into their court as to what they're going to do, whether they're going to move their budget, change their brief or come somewhere in the middle of those two. So. But I think that's the thing, Amelia, I'm sure you find this as well as, and I complete, I'm completely um, sympathetic of this is where do people, ascertain their budget from. Like where, where do you come up with that number? And that's always my starting point as well. Like I, I understand you have a number and you're probably not even sure where it came up from as well. It's just what you think is reasonable. So let's let's just have that as a conversation. We, we won't start a pre-design phase unless there's a, a, some correlation to reality to what we think is the outcome. But we will often start that phase and go, that's a starting point for that budget. Like it might go up, it might go down. We don't need to lock that in at, at now. Let's use the pre-design phase to actually work out what the budget is. Because that's 
I would, this is as important a part of the brief as you know number of bedrooms and what's actually required from it. So let's get those two in balance as we go through that process. Um, it's an important part of it. Yeah, it's fantastic. And that, you know, not really knowing where the number comes from, I see that with homeowners too, because they generally are just trying to figure out what's the most that they can afford without putting themselves under financial pressure, particularly when it's their long-term family home. But there's no sort of point or reference of reality in terms of what's achievable. And I, I also find that homeowners sometimes have capacity to spend more if they believe they're going to get something different for the outcome. You know, something's not expensive or cheap until you actually have something attached to it because our interpretation of what's expensive or cheap is purely personal. So it's, um, yeah, it's a really, a really interesting exercise that you take them through. And if you, if you kind of keeping that open through that pre-design phase, it means that, you know, I'm always saying to clients, it's, it's cheap when it's on paper. Let's draw something on paper. It's much cheaper than when you build it. So let's look at the $500,000, $700,000, $900,000 option so that you understand where the play is in between those range of budgets. And we can just explore that through those blocks, really. And um, again, it's still not without a floor plan. Because the, the wonderful thing about those kind of room block sizes is that they are to scale so we can start to very quickly you know like lego put them onto the plan and see what that looks like and and how the plan might evolve yeah it's it's just honestly it was I, 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 I would love that to be taught to architectural and building design students throughout the country. I think that <laughs> process alone would just be so powerful for clients. So, Well, I think that, you know, as architects, you know, like we, we're visual and we're analytical, right? We actually got some skill sets that um, I think uh, go beyond working out the perfect windowsill detail. Like I think that, you know, there's a lot of... If we can apply the kind of thinking that we do into that information sharing, there's some great outcomes from it. And that, that's what I've found, you know, like it's even to the point of just putting things like a rug on a sofa on that living room, you know, it gives a scale, it gives it information without having any sort of resolution. Like we, we're pretty good, we're pretty intuitive about how to get that information across. So we should do it. <laughs> Um, now, the third area that you talk about during this pre-design phase, which I thought was actually probably, it struck me that this might be where you have the most fun as well, <laughs> if you did have to choose one, um, uh, is um, is the inspiration. And this is really starting to kind of, uh, I suppose, skip the light fantastic on what might be possible for the project, what the potential could be, what are the out-of-the-box ideas what are the conceptual ideas that almost can be tested as deal breakers or, you know, oh, wow, we'd never thought of that being possible as, as, as an early kind of benchmark for where a homeowner's uh, thoughts and vision might be for their project. Can you talk through that idea of inspiration and the kinds of things that you're exploring if you are using it as an opportunity to sort of test the appetite of the client their level of adventure and ambition versus, you know, what their aesthetic preferences might be, how you sort of use that process to really get to know your client and what might be possible for the project. Right. I, I should end with this, this, yeah, it's a bit to that. I hope it, remind me if I miss a bit. It's um, <laughs> a big question. <laughs> um, I think what I quite like about it is that 
it's again, it's that role of the architect, right? So you've come to me as a client because we are a building professional, you know, and we, we're going to navigate those things of budget and regulations and siting, and we'll do it competently because we're going to be a competent professional. But as architects, we're, we're creative, right? And that's that's why clients have come to us and they're not gone to a building designer or, you know, off the plan company. They, they want your creative aspect um, into it. And, and it's a great way to sort of to show what that is. To, 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 you've come to us for um, to be creative. But what does that mean? How and where can we be creative? Where does that create creativity apply itself? So I like to sort of apply some of that creativity, creative thinking into that knowledge and experience basis, like creative planning and creative budget use. But this inspiration level is more the, the, the real creative part of it, the part that probably, possibly we can do that others can't do. And then we'll explore a whole range of things. This is where, you know, to use the analogy of loading up the Land Rover, we might put some stuff on there that we're not going to use. You know, we might have some things on there that's, you know, didn't, didn't get unpacked during the trip. I really need those velvet pants for this trip. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I didn't need those velvet pants. <laughs> it was too hot. Um, so, when for our particular projects, like, I'm very interested in the materiality of the projects and, ha and how sort of where the places that you sort of touch and feel the houses and how that palette of materials plays its way through to the design. So that's materiality is something that we like to investigate and think about really early and then work through the project rather than applying after a particular point of design. Now, the point is, I guess, is that sort of materiality does require a certain level of buy-in from the client. You know, if you're going to have exposed brick walls in your living room, are you okay about that? Is that something you're comfortable with? Is that something you actually really love? You know, like that we can have that conversation. We can have a conversation about you know, reverse brick veneer and thermal mass. Again, we can do that, but we can talk about that kind of aesthetic appeal for it, what it means to sort of put your hand on it after it's had late afternoon sun. So that, that's one part of it. Um, the other part of it is we often will sort of use analogy, you know, like the house, the Venus Bay house, we talked about it being like a bird hide. And the thing about it is that there's sort of bird hides in the area and there's an architecture type that we could look at. But there's a way that you look at a view through a bird hide that's kind of a horizontal slot. And then there's another way that you look through full height glazing. So we're talking about how you connect to a view through a window type with no floor plan or design, right? That's an important sort of way to have that conversation. Um, and then I think the sort of third sort of area we will use is precedent. So it's kind of like a legal thing. If you're doing a contract with lawyers, they'll just refer to precedents, other ones that have been done that are similar and they will just pull some clauses over. So we like to look at precedents. So we'll show clients, main projects of ours, maybe um, you know, mid-century projects or other contemporaries of ours. And so we could just talk about the design of those projects again yeah. without it being sure. subjective, like this is your house. So we can just talk about inspiration really. Guess. Um, 
And again, it's that kind of two-way sharing of it. You know, like people might come to us for inspiration that they're keen to incorporate. And, you know, everyone's got the Pinterest boards, you know, that they kind of share with you. It's our opportunity to sort of put some inspiration back the other way as well. So here's, when we look at your site, here's some things that we think about. Here's some places that we think about. And a big part of that process is just having a conversation as well. So while we might show an image of concrete and timber cladding, you know, the client might really focus on some metalwork that's in there. And, you know, that reminds them they were a child, or that's something they'd like to incorporate. Those unanticipated conversations um, are really valuable, and it's about creating cues to those as well. So that, again, there's quite a bit to that sort of section between materiality and things we'd like to include and other projects we might refer to and uh, analogies or, or a sort of a theme that we can create around a project. And, and I think that really the better designs from that third part of it, that we are actually able to establish a narrative. So a narrative's like a story goes into the design. So when we have those conversations and tease out what's important or what we want to use, that becomes the narrative for the design. That we That's how we talk about it as we actually go into the design. Yeah, I think that that, what, that inspiration section is the dimension that design and an experienced designer can actually add that so far exceeds the arrangement of rooms and spaces on a floor plan that generates a form, you know, it's that whole um, exploration of the, I don't know, it's, it's, it's the hardest thing to describe, isn't it, in terms of what, what an architect or a really experienced um, designer can add to the process in terms of thinking about it really creatively because that, that storytelling is almost then can become this consistent thread like your briefies for everything to be checked back against that then creates that holistic design that has then a subconscious resonance with you when you experience it because everything seems logically connected in a way that you can't consciously kind of see uh, and it's and it's it's um and it's driven by these ideas of you know like for example that bird hide or you know what a a coastal dune might look like or you know what we might want a you know rather than it being this styled stylized thing of like I want something industrial I want something Scandi or I want something you know X Y and Z it's I can see how it could be so drawn out from what's unique for the site and that homeowner to then create that beautiful connection to the home and um, that they're, what makes them them is actually threaded through the way that the story of that that design has been explored and tested. So it's... Well, like, as, 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 as you say, that design and build process is like 10,000 decisions that you need to make, right? And so what are the, what are the things we bring to that decision-making process? And, you know, it's, it's not a satisfying project for anybody if it's just about budget, right? So if there's other parts and other sense and other narrative that we can add to it, that's going to be a highly, you know, it's going to be more satisfying and it's also going to be enable better decision-making. Yeah. Now, this is probably is going to sound like quite an obvious question because of the conversation that we've just had, but I'd love if you could just, I suppose, give it a, as an opportunity to to revisit some things is... The what do you actually say 
is the main outcome for starting your projects with this pre-design? You know, why why is this the way you start projects in terms of how it serves the homeowner, the client, the project, the process? What do you really see as the main outcome for pre-design? It may sound a little bit selfish in a way, but the main outcome is that when we come to, to design, when we come to present a design, we, we, we have buy-in. Like, we, we, don't, we don't present a design and people are like, well, I'm not really sure about that. Or have you explored this or another direction, you know? Yes, it's not, you know, there's that famous Frank Lloyd Wright story about Kaufman getting really frustrated for his, you know, falling water house design and finally just getting on a plane and then calling Frank Lloyd Wright going, you know, I'm driving over to you now to see what progress you've made. And he just kind of brings the paper out and draws it all and presents it and, you know, it's all fabulous. But, you know, we, we don't do that. I think when I say that the process we follow is kind of the opposite of it. And that once we tend to present the design, that you know they love it. But there's a, it's almost like yes, we knew we were going there, you know, like yeah, you know, that's the kind of outcome we were expecting. And it's that's not a, it's not a bad or negative thing, right? There's there's always elements of surprise and delight to it. But there's a process that we've gone in together. That when we come to present that floor plan and that design, there's a sense of right. That's, that's logical, it makes sense to us. And, you know, I'm glad we're here now. Let's keep moving forward. <laughs> this is exciting, <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's a quality of partnership that I think is um, to be really aimed for for homeowners when they're choosing to work with a designer or an architect because what you've described is not only the pragmatics of let's figure out the best strategic approach to this design so that we can achieve what you want for the budget you want to spend, the simplest pathway through council, you know, meeting all of the various criteria that we need to. And at the same time, what do we do as, as designers to really understand you so intimately that we honour the trust that you're placing in us to help realise this vision that you have, not only for your future home, but the investment you're making in it and the dreams of the lifestyle that you're hoping it will help you lead. And, you know, how do we, how do we craft a, re, a working partnership that enables us to be really collaborative in that, in that sense so that we, you know, they bring what they offer and you bring what you offer as their architect to realise the full potential of all of that. So, Anthony, I just can't thank you enough for taking us through that in detail. You're so generous with the way that you talk about your model of practice. And, um, I, yeah, I really encourage um, anybody listening to check out the resources. Um, they'll be included in the show notes um, to be able to find Anthony and his team. But thank you so much for joining us and taking us through that pre-design. I know it's going to be incredibly helpful for homeowners. to It'll just help them think about starting their projects in a very different way. So I really appreciate it. Did you enjoy that? Did you find it helpful? I really do hope so. I really loved being able to connect with Anthony and to learn more about his methodologies and processes of working with his clients, particularly in this pre-design phase. I really do hope that it gave you some ideas and some insights as to the types of investigations to be making before you commence your floor plan design, whoever you're working with and wherever your project is. Getting yourself in a position to start the right design and to, as Anthony said, load up your four-wheel drive with the most suitable and useful equipment for a journey that will meet a range of futures. 
that's going to help you create a home that works for you now and into the future. A home that's ultimately flexible for all that your family and life might throw at it while still being your haven and sanctuary for a long time. Remember, you'll find links to get in touch with Anthony plus other resources mentioned in this episode by heading to www.undercoverarchitect.com forward slash 207 and that's the numbers 207. Please share this podcast episode with family, friends, colleagues, even strangers, basically anyone that you know it may help so that we can get this information and knowledge into the ears and hands of as many homeowners as possible and improve their experience of designing, building and renovating their family homes. I love hearing the stories of those who found this podcast thanks to the generosity of another listener. It is just awesome. Now, if you haven't left a review on the Undercover Architect podcast, especially if you listen on iTunes, I would be so grateful if you please could. It really makes a difference in enabling this podcast to reach others that it can help. And it also ensures that I can continue to grow the podcast and get amazing guests and information on here as well. Be sure to tune in for our next episode, which lands each Tuesday morning to access helpful information and education in your project journey so that you can get it right as you design, build or renovate your family home. As always, thank you for tuning in and for letting me be your secret ally. Until next time, bye.